Hey everyone, there is some strong language in today's episode, including a couple of F-bombs. I've not beeped anything out, so I thought I should let you know about it beforehand. Hey everybody, just a reminder that at PeteBrownSays.com there's a submit page where I post a prompt and you're invited to submit responses. There's a record button right on the page, you just click it, record your response and it gets sent right to me. It's all anonymous and I'd love to hear your stories. So check out PeteBrownSays.com and click submit. Good times. Hello again, everybody. This is Pete in almost real time. I just want to take a quick moment to welcome any of you who are coming to Pete Brown Says because you heard me tell a story on the Risk podcast that was released this week. First of all, welcome. Pete Brown Says is my creative nonfiction storytelling podcast. If you like the story that I told on the Risk podcast, then you're going to find a lot to love in Pete Brown Says. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, Risk is one of the top storytelling podcasts. I recently was able to share a tale at one of their live events in Cincinnati, Ohio, and it went live on the Risk podcast this week. It was an amazing experience for me and a huge opportunity. The Risk podcast gets over a million downloads every month. So again, welcome to any of you who are just now finding Pete Brown Says. I told a funny story on the Risk podcast, and I just thought I'd make a couple of recommendations if you're new to Pete Brown Says and you like that story that I told on Risk. I'd recommend checking out Season 1, Episode 2, I Are Smart, or Episode 4, Trying Something You Thought You'd Be Good At, and uh, also Episode 10, Cut to the Chase. All three of those are very much in the same vein as the story I told on Risk. We're just past the halfway point in Season 2, and I'm really excited to bring you today's story because I've been working on it, no joke here, for about 10 years. It was that long ago that we adopted a dog who's the titular character of today's show. My daughter was four or five years old when we adopted this dog, and she told me at that time she wanted to make a movie about him. So for years, every couple of months, we'd shoot a bunch of footage of him or we'd do interviews. And the net result was I had a ton of source material to pull from for today's episode. And if you check out PeteBrownSays.com this week or the Pete Brown Says page on Facebook, I'm going to pull together a short video based on a lot of this footage we captured over the years just to sort of complement the episode. So you'll really get a chance to see the pooch that we're celebrating in today's show. This was a fun one to make. I'm excited to share it with you all. So let's get right to it. This is Season 2, Episode 6, Timbuktu. Have you ever started a project with the best of intentions, only to have it fizzle out, momentum-wise, part of the way through? Maybe you revisit it every so often, once or twice a year, say. Try to get some momentum going again, figure out a way to move it closer to done. I found that this happens a lot, and if it happens to something I and I alone have worked on, I don't feel too badly about it. I've got a handful of half-done manuscripts that fall into this category. Someday, I think, I hope, I'll get back to them. The half-done projects that really start to haunt me are the ones I've involved other people in, mostly volunteers. Things like short films, which I started to work on in earnest back in my late 30s and early 40s after finding some success writing for a few television projects. Today's story is born from one such never-finished project. And I'm hoping that by turning it into a podcast, 
I can lay it to rest in my brain. And, if it all works out, there should be a short video that goes with this episode, posted out on my social media channels, or available on PeteBrownSays.com. This is a story about Timbuktu. Not the city in the African country of Mali. I mean the dog. This is my dog, Timbuktu. It's kind of hard to write about one of our dogs, we have four as I'm writing today, without giving a very cursory background of my lovely wife's dog problem. Addiction, really. Because she loves dogs, and especially the unloved dogs. Puppy meal rescues, street adoptions, disabled dogs, hard to housebreak, all the better. We brought two dogs home with us at the end of our two years of service in the Peace Corps. How do you get dogs out of Russia? The short answer is bribery, and a lot of it. We've been married for 23 years, and in that time we've had eight dogs, and again as many that we found homes for. Sixteen by my count at this writing. There's just not time to run through them all, or how we found them forever homes, or cared for them until their passing. Until quite recently, one of my wife's self-soothing activities was browsing through pictures of adoptable dogs on the websites of local animal shelters. Somehow this activity is connected to me being emotionally unavailable, just so you know. But when she yearned to adopt a fourth dog this past November, and just so you know, four is the maximum number of dogs our township allows you to have, which we know because we looked it up. When she wanted to adopt a fourth dog, it came with a signed agreement that she would stop browsing these websites and bringing home more pooches. Now me, for much of my life, I'd have told you that I like dogs. They can be fun and comforting and I suppose, quote, emotionally available. But my liking of dogs has kind of been beat out of me over hundreds of messes I've cleaned up over the years, of thousands and thousands of dollars we've spent at the vet, of this smell that I just can't get out of my nose anymore. After we adopted one dog, in fact, the dog I'm writing about today, my wife hired a doggy masseuse for him, who came to our house and gave him a massage. This is exactly what it sounds like. Basically, a woman who is somehow crazier for dogs than my wife was paid to come to my house and vigorously pet one of them for 30 minutes, for which we paid her 50 bucks. I drew a hard line that day. No more doggy masseuses. And honestly, I wish I could roll with the chaos dogs bring more gracefully. But the more dogs we have over the years, the harder it has become for me. I suppose this is in part me aging, and also in part, I mean, 16 fucking dogs. Come on, people. I took my family to Ireland for a week earlier this year, and it cost me more to have the animals taken care of than our Airbnb in central Dublin cost for the entire week. So I wouldn't say I love dogs anymore. I love my wife, and thus I realize that dogs are going to come with that. But the truth is, I'm feeling more than done with them. Like I've paid my dues, and at the end of the day, I feel like I've earned some dog-free years. I'm not going to get them, I know, but a guy can still dream. What I will get, again, at the end of the day, by which I mean today, as I write this, at the end of a long workday, will likely be a mess in the house that my kids, who are technically supposed to take the dogs out when they get home from school, will have successfully ignored until I get home from work. In fact, there may be more than one mess, because we had the plumber doing work in the house today, because plumbers make dogs nervous, and that just seems to make our dogs want to poop even more. 
All right, enough about our long history of dogs. Although, quick aside here, my wife's biography could legit be subtitled A Long History of Dogs. Today's story is about just one of those dogs and the many years-long project that came with him. When my kids were in preschool and first grade, respectively. I was traveling a good deal for work, two or three weeks out of every month. We were very briefly down to one dog at this point, a little white poof of a dog we had adopted in Russia in 1995 and named Ripken, after Cal Ripken Jr., who that year broke Lou Gehrig's record for consecutive baseball games played. And having just one dog was great. You could take care of him and manage our little ones without much fuss. But my wife cited my frequent travel as the basis of her expressed desire to get a big dog, which I suppose is hard to argue against when you're the one doing all the traveling. We had a few false starts with some big dogs before we ended up adopting, for reasons I am still unclear on, an emotionally disturbed Labradoodle that we named Tallulah. But this story isn't about Tallulah, or if it is, it's only in the most cursory of ways. Because with two dogs, including one big dog, which allegedly was for our increased protection, I happily considered our family out of the dog market. Then one day, I got a text message with a photo attached. I know that sounds weird now, but in the pre-smartphone era, it took a bit of doing to even take a photo, let alone attach it to a text message. And that my wife, a Luddite at heart and something of a technology black widow, had managed to do it, that immediately caught my attention. So I downloaded the attachment on my phone, which took about a minute for realsies, and opened the photo. It was a down-the-snout shot of a chocolate lab sitting inside what looked to be a playpen on a public sidewalk. I know these photos well. The adoption event photo. I've gotten hundreds of them from my wife and kids over the years, all with the same entreaty, please, can we adopt this dog? Why do I always have to be the bad guy? I'm just trying to be reasonable about things, like the amount of work a dog is, and how many years that work goes on, and the amount of money they cost, and also, you know, the amount of fucking dogs you already have in your little suburban house. So I triple tapped a reply to my wife. Triple tapping was how you used to have to type text messages, by the way. Each number had three letters assigned, and you got the letter you needed by tapping it once, twice, or thrice. Another quick aside, that was the first time I've ever used the word thrice in my writing, and I'm experiencing a momentary thrill having done so. Unlike dogs, I still love words, I guess. Here's what I carefully triple-tapped back. If you get that dog, comma, you can name him, quote, divorce, unquote. This became an oft-repeated story in our house. Even my young kids learned it and entertained their teachers with their retelling of it. My mom told my dad that she wanted to adopt this dog. And then my dad said, sure, you can adopt that dog and name him Divorce. In the days that followed, my wife and kids mounted an advocacy campaign for adopting this dog. In fact, if there's anything I hope my kids have learned from having these dogs all these years, it's how to build a grassroots advocacy effort by enlisting like-minded souls to your cause and then just wearing down the opposition through sheer tenacity. The lab, who was called Rusty by his foster mother, was disabled. His disability was this, 
his back legs don't bend. He can't bend his back legs, but um, he still uh, does. Uh, he still um, walks around like, and does the thing that a regular dog can do. It's as if his knees have been fused straight. It sounds as weird as it looks. His two back legs come down at an angle from his hips, and to get around, he uses them like a single pogo stick to kind of bounce his way about. My kids were four and six at this time, and at breakfast every day, my son would ask if today was the day we went and got the new dog. My daughter, only four at the time, would say things like, Dad, we'll get the dog and you make a movie about him, okay? Make a movie? They knew at the time I was writing for a television video game hybrid property, and I was realizing that I could do a much better job of it if I got my production and, in particular, my post-production skills back up to speed. So I'd started taking some production courses again at the local arts college, where my fellow students called me that one old guy in the class. This was an astute tactic by my then four-year-old daughter, by the way, because making short films was something I was beginning to do and enjoy with some regularity. Still, we were full up on the dog front as far as I was concerned. So I was unfazed one morning when my wife brought me a cup of coffee while I was still waking up, and she said, I had a dream last night. A real clear dream. I braced myself. Her dreams can be pretty weird, and despite 20 plus years of marriage, a lot of them still throw me for a loop. In my dream, you said we could adopt that dog and that we would name him Timbuktu. That sounds like a nightmare, I said, holding the line. We talked about it, about the dog, bringing the dog home, or we're, you know, the question I wanted to know was, is it possible for us to adopt another dog? And your answer was no. And I said, and we talked about it. it. seems like we talked about it for a weekend or something. And, and, and I said, I understand. You're right. But I just want you to know, for some reason, I feel like if that dog was my dog, I would name him Timbuktu. And you said, Mm, okay, that's great, because I want you to know if that dog was my dog, I would name it Divorce. Can we get him, please, she said. Come on, I said. Don't make me the bad guy. But the truth is, I am the bad guy. I just didn't think that we as a family at this point in time could manage three dogs, one of whom's disabled. I didn't think we could afford it. I think it would provide a regular inflow of the kind of challenging, chaotic situations that I am particularly poor at handling. And I think that 125% of our energy is already taken up just managing two kids. And then there's the comedian George Carlin's line, which I've always found to be true. Pets are just future tragedies for your children. I think that was George Carlin, by the way. I've not had much luck in sourcing it. A few days later... Over my lunch hour at work, I drove to the local half-price books to sell a box of paperbacks. If you've never done this, let me give you a quick tip. Get a figure in your head of what you think the books are worth, and then figure out what 1% of that figure is, because that's what they're likely to offer. And so be it. They're trying to build a business on books, for Christ's sake. And what's your alternative? Take the books home and store them? Give them to goodwill? It's just... If you let something like the handful of change half-price books is going to offer you for your books upset you, you're going into the transaction with the wrong idea. I had a good 20 or so decent quality mysteries to sell back. 
I was happy to receive the princely sum of $2.25 for them. And as I turned from the sellback desk with my receipt in hand, I stopped in my tracks. There before me was a table beset with a mountain of copies of the same book, which is how half-price books sells remainders, I suppose. The book was a paperback by Paul Auster, who is one of my favorites, but it was the cover that grabbed me. It had a photo of a brownish-looking dog looking to camera. The title, in red letters, stretched above, Timbuktu. And my stomach sank, and I said, oh shit, out loud. So I guess we should talk a bit about signs. Not like store signs, I mean signs from the universe, and if I believe in them. I want to say in some small way, I think all of us believe in signs, or feel that there was some higher significance attached to a coincidence in our lives. I don't know that I believe signs are all around us if we tune into them, as some say. But I do think if you get a weird feeling in your stomach as you're experiencing a coincidence, it may be your subconscious's way to tell you to pay attention. Because that's what I felt that day, looking at the mountain of books called Timbuktu. I didn't see the sign so much as I felt it. And I know this is different for everybody. When I explained this story to a friend of ours, she snapped, That's not a sign. A sign is when your doorbell rings and it's the Virgin Mary standing there telling you to adopt this freaking dog. So we all have our own bar, I guess. For me, I bought a copy of the book, which was $2, by the way, so the amount I had gotten selling back my box of books just covered it. And that evening, when I got home from work, I sat down on the bed, I took a deep breath, and I told my wife I'd go look at the dog. And you came home on Monday, the following Monday from work, and you looked, I would almost say you looked sort of devastated. And you came into the bedroom and you sat down on the foot of the bed. And I looked at you and I thought, okay, he, he quit his job. And I said, what's wrong? And you looked at me and said, well, I guess we can go get that dog. And I said, what? What are you talking about? Because I thought you'd quit your job. And you had in your hand a, a plastic bag, and out of that bag, you pulled out a book. And on the cover of the book was a dog that, you know, it, it was just a dog, but it could have been a chocolate lab. It could have been a black lab. It could have been any any lavish dog at the pound. But it was a black and white picture of, you know, what you could say is a chocolate lab. And the title of the book was Timbuktu. Now, I've come to know myself truthfully enough to understand that Going to look at a dog usually means we end up getting the dog. In fact, I think it's been 100% of the times. One time, my wife was bent on adopting a crazy energetic black lab named Scout, and when I tried to raise my concerns that he seemed like a bit of a handful, we still ended up bringing him home, where he was, in fact, more than we could handle. Plus, he was intent on eating our little dog Ripken. Still, we gave it a go for two solid weeks before I stepped in with an ultimatum and took Scout back to find a family better suited to his needs. Rusty, as he was then known, was being fostered by a retired woman named Helen who lived in a trailer in a rural part of the next county up. She had some land and fostered a lot of dogs. There was at least 10 or 15 running around when we visited. And I'll tell you this, despite his disability, Rusty got on just fine with the pack, tearing around the yard and trying to get one of the tennis balls we flung about. 
I can tell you we have had dog adoptions from the pound where the little guys with big eyes look, look pleadingly at us through the fence and just beg us with their eyes to bring them home. Rusty did none of these things. He scarcely looked our way when we called him, and when he did stop by to smell the kids, he covered them with a righteous slobber. So what do you think, my wife asked. As if still deluding myself that this wasn't a done deal, I said, I don't know. He seems like a good dog, but I'm worried about the work. What do you mean? Helen asked. I mean, all the extra work having a third dog is going to bring, I said. Helen tilted her head and looked at me like she didn't understand. Honestly, the same way a dog tilts its head and looks at you when you blow a high-pitched whistle. Technically, three dogs was at most one-fifth the number she took care of, so it probably sounded like a good deal to her. And as you might guess, we brought the dog home, and, and we, we named, named him, him Timbuktu. Timbuktu. My mom said that the universe gave my dad a sign that we should get the dog. Here are a few of the surprising things we learned about Timbuktu after he came to live with us. 1. He was hella strong. Despite his rigid back legs, he went on four and five mile walks with my wife almost daily. To get through the dog door to go out back, he basically lifted himself onto his front two paws and handstand walked his way through. 2. He had different ideas about being a downstairs dog than I had for him. By which, I mean, I guess I thought he'd sleep downstairs when we turned in each night. I was younger and stronger then, but for me to carry him up the stairs every night was still a dicey proposition. Luckily, it was one I didn't have to do. Instead, he pulled himself upstairs, step by step. He'd put his front paws two steps up, then he'd lift his back legs up a step, then he'd pause and breathe like this. Then he'd do another step. And you know he was working his way upstairs because you could hear the thump, thump, thump of his legs banging into each step as he raised them up. I don't want to imply here that Timbuktu was like one of those tiny, needy dogs who has to be with you at all times. He most definitely was not. He was a true dog's dog, wolfing his food down in 30 seconds and washing it down with big drinks from the toilet. But like a good bro, he wanted to be where everybody was hanging out. So every night, up the stairs he climbed. Way to go, brah. Three. If you were taking Timbuktu on a walk, it was highly likely that you were going to end up in a conversation with a stranger. Most dog people, I think, are used to this. They always stop on their walks to talk to each other. They ask questions about the gender and breed of the other person's dog, while the two pooches circle each other nervously, wrapping leashes around human legs as they work their way in to smell each other's buttholes. And inevitably, one dog won't like what he smells, and growls and snaps ensue, and you yank your dog out of there by his leash, and you back off a few feet and look for a way out of the conversation. I've stood by while this exact scenario has played out at least a thousand times in our lives. But the thing about Timbuktu was... Even non-dog people would stop and ask about his legs, and he'd lay down on the sidewalk or the trail and close his eyes and pant and let you pet him while you talk to us. If other dogs were around, it was pretty rare there'd be any truck between them and Timbuktu. He was just like that one dude you know that it's impossible to be mad at. Timbuktu, the dude. Four. He headed out for geese in a big way. When we walked him past a retention pond near our home, he took off after them with a vengeance, and when they fled into the water, he charged in after them, which is how we learned that he could swim.
Shortly after we adopted Timbuktu, a request came in from a friend to see if Timbuktu could visit her husband's church one Sunday. I think he was giving a sermon about making the best with what you've got, and Timbuktu was going to be his visual aid. And so my wife said, yeah, no problem, conveniently forgetting that she was otherwise engaged that Sunday, meaning, more or less, that I'd been volunteered to take him. And in case you wondered, I am not a huge fan of being voluntold to do things, and I'm definitely not a huge fan of church, but especially not a brand new church where I know nobody and where my wife won't be around to help out with all that friendly chit-chat. I struggle to do folksy, you know. Don't worry, my wife told me. I'm taking Timbuktu there for a visit on Friday afternoon so he can smell it. For some reason, she thought this made up for volunteering me for this duty. In truth, it just meant that Timbuktu was going to have more experience with this place than I was. Maybe he could be the folksy one. Friday afternoon came, and my wife and daughter drove Timbuktu to the church and met up with the maintenance lady, and they brought him into the sanctuary to smell around. Which he did. He smelled the pews and the hymnals. He smelled the organ and the carpet. He smelled the little cup holders. He smelled the steps leading up to the altar. And while my wife and the maintenance lady chatted about his legs, Timbuktu swung his behind over to the side and dropped a deuce. Right in front of the altar. We were standing there and he swung his his hips over to one side, which was his signal for getting ready to poop, and he lifted his tail, and he pooped a humongous poop in the sanctuary. And, not to get too graphic here, but he was adjusting to a new dog food and wasn't solid at the time. It's more like soft-serve ice cream, I'm told, which was a real shame because, at that very moment, a wedding party was starting to arrive for their rehearsal. Yikes. And when my wife told me this, I looked over to where Timbuktu was laying, looking around and panting like he does. Hey, did you go drop a deuce on the altar of a church, I asked him. In response, he closed his eyes and bounced his head up and down as he panted, cool as a cucumber. My man, I said to Timbuktu. My man. He was forever surprising us with what he could do and delighting us with his always positive demeanor. I don't think I ever saw him in down spirits. Even as he got older and getting around grew more difficult, even as his nuzzle grayed and we had to carry him in and out, up and down the deck steps, even when he spent most of his days laying down and waiting for four o'clock to roll around, which was when he'd push himself up to a seated position and yelp like a puppy until we came and fed him. This was a different kind of bark, by the way, than his happy bark, and yet still different from the yelp he made when he was stuck because of his legs and needed some help. Come to think of it, he was a pretty good communicator for a dog. I actually think he could give my teenage son a run for his money in the communications department, since he, my son that is, has mostly reduced his speech to different sounding grunts. And as for making a movie, we did, my daughter and I, shoot some footage of Timbuktu every few months. We did interviews one day. In fact, those little kid voices you heard up top in this episode were from that time. Nowadays, those two are surly teenagers, and they sound like this. Hi, my name is Mattis Brown. I'm 16 years old, 
And one thing I remember about Timbuktu is how he used to go up the stairs and we would just hear the thumping when I was really little. I just remember hearing the, the thumping and then he'd take a break and then he'd thump, thump, thump up the stairs. And this. My name's Parkin. I'm 18 and I remember Timbuktu would climb up the stairs to see us despite the fact that he couldn't use the lower half of his body. Once we decided we wanted to get some shots of Timbuktu chasing geese, but we wanted to get them from his perspective. I envisioned this shot from just behind his head, his nose poking into the center of the frame as it chased down geese. To get this shot, I borrowed a GoPro from a colleague. GoPros were rather new back then, and not nearly as many people had them as they do today. I tried to figure out a rig that Timbuktu could wear so I'd get the shot, but everything I built tipped over as soon as he began bounding after the geese. So we changed tactics, and instead, I mounted the GoPro to the end of a 10-foot PVC pipe, and I tried following him around with this rig. And it seemed to be going well until he dove into the retention pond to swim after the geese. I waded in after him, thinking of the beautiful shot I was about to get. Timbuktu's nose pointed towards some geese as he swam, the golden hour sunlight bathing the water in oranges and yellows. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as I waded in to get the shot. In no way did I think, hey, maybe there's a steep drop-off in this retention pond, which in fact there was, because I was only a few feet in when I took a step and found no bottom to meet it, and down I went, completely submerged. I don't know how deep it went, but I never hit bottom before I managed to swim back up, grab the PVC pipe, and head for shore. The footage of that shot, by the way, is pretty hilarious. And if it all works out, as I'm hoping, you can see that shot and some of the other footage we took of Timbuktu over the years in a short video I'll post on PeteBrownSays.com and on the Facebook page for the show, maybe on Instagram too. I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to give you the ending that you want for this episode, which I'm guessing that you know by now. Timbuktu passed away this past summer, closing his eyes one last time and bopping his head up and down, cool as a cucumber. We're down to two dogs now as I finish this essay, and they're pretty small Chihuahua Dachshund mixes, or Chihuahuas as they're known. But of all the dogs we've had over the years, Timbuktu is the one I think of the most often. Almost every day, in fact, since he passed. Right around four o'clock in the afternoon, when sometimes, I swear, I can still hear him yelp. Godspeed, Timbuktu. My man. Okay, once again, I want to say thanks to any new listeners who are joining us. If you like the show, please tell a friend or two about this quirky new podcast you've given a listen to. Or you can leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back in about two weeks with a new episode. Until then, and as always, good times, everybody. Good times.
Pete Brown Says is the property of Blue Monkey Communications and is a work of creative nonfiction audio written and produced by me, Pete Brown. This show is written to the very best of my memory. Some music in the show comes from Brian Hake and Kevin Davison. And the closing song, I'm Not Myself, is by their band, Delicious. Other audio may have been sourced from the websites audionautics.com, incompetech.com, the YouTube Free Music Library, freesound.org, and podcastmusic.com. Most pieces are licensed under Creative Commons. Please see the show notes at PeteBrownSays.com for complete attribution. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. And as always, thanks for your time listening today. Good times, everyone. Save it, my friends, dear, please.